Please stand if you're able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Please read with me the verses in bold. After he had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation and he's the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turning to the crowd that followed him said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Good to see uh, all of you this morning. Uh, thanks for being here with us. Uh, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors here, uh, and I also add my greeting as well. My wife and I moved to Northern California nearly 22 years ago. We found ourselves uh, far away from family, I guess not nearly as far as Brad and Olivia, especially as you think about their families in the Midwest. But like most people, I think, when they migrate to a new city or a new state, you find family away from family. This seems to be the norm, I think. For many people, as education or employment and new opportunities take us further and further away from our hometown, those places we grew up, and away from family, parents and siblings and relatives. And as you can imagine, there's both positives and difficulties of having family so far away. One of the good things I mentioned is that you build a family away from family. We all need it. We all need family. It's essential to our survival. It takes a village. So we had to create our own family that consisted of friends in our community, our church family. I remember meal trains we received when we brought a new child into the world, and we had three of them. This village included older and wiser men and women, aunties and uncles to our family, to our kids. They helped watch our kids when, they needed, when we needed help. And particularly, each time we had to go to the hospital after our first kid. When we had a fire to our home, 
These friends let us stay with them while we found a new place to call home. When there was another fire near our new home, when all the smoke filled that area, we stayed with church family. And I would say it's the same families that we planted a church with uh, several years ago. Family away from family. In the story that we read together this morning, three particular characters star in the opening verses of chapter 7 in the book of Luke. We are in a long sermon series that we're calling That You May Know, and in our story this morning, three. There's Jesus, there's this centurion, and then there is his servant. And the account's central figure of This story is the centurion. He is ranked, to give you a little bit of history and backdrop, he is ranked between a decurion, one who had command over 10 people, 10 soldiers, a kiliarch who was responsible for 1,000 soldiers, and a centurion was, of course, as you may guess from the name, a one who had authority over a century of soldiers, a hundred. These men made significantly more than the lowest paid soldier. Some scholars say anywhere between 20 and a hundred times more. They were typically single, as you would often be deployed to the four corners of the Roman Empire. And because you were sent out to the corners of the known world, sometimes they were required to spend extended periods of time away from home. And some say as long as 20 years away from home. That's a long deployment. And speaking of deployment, I wanted to say real quickly, thank you to our veterans who have served so faithfully. Thank you for your service. But this meant that these centurions often found family away from family. So what do we know about the centurion in our story? Well, we know more about him than his servant. We know the least about this third character of our story. All we know that he was sick to the point of death, his life uh, hanging by a thread, The Gospel of Matthew also mentions this story, and Matthew tells us a little bit more than what we read about in the book of Luke. Matthew's version in chapter 8 tells us that he was paralyzed and and suffering in great pain. In fact, we never even meet the centurion's servant. It's fascinating. When you read through this, he never appears on the scene. He's only mentioned that he is sick and that he's in great and dire need. We know that he is sick to the point of death, his life hanging by a thread. We don't even know his name. The centurion never mentions his name. We don't know the cause of his illness, how long he had been sick. This is all we know, just that he's sick, probably lying on a couch. And again, that's that's made up. It's not in the text, but just I can imagine he's immobile, not able to do anything, laying there until help can be found. We know more about the centurion than his servant. 
And now what's surprising about this story is that this main character in our story, the centurion, he's a Gentile. And all that means that he's not, he's not Jewish. And that, that's significant in the Gospel of Luke. You find a cast of actors and actresses who don't belong necessarily. He's an outsider outside of the covenant family. These are unlikely characters who find grace and, and mercy at the hands of Jesus. And again, he's not only a Gentile, he is a Roman soldier. He's part of the occupying force of Romans that most Jews want out of their country. So you can already imagine the kind of tension that's there between the Romans and the Jews, and particularly a Roman who was in charge of a hundred and the Jews. This particular centurion lived in Capernaum, a small fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And most likely true of this centurion too was that he was chosen for his leadership ability. They were brutal, I think. I, I think they had to be. They were the backbone of the Roman army. They were not always Roman, but they were always Gentiles. Again, they were not Jews who occupied these positions of centurion in the Roman army. The New Testament uses the word centurion 21 times, and strangely, strangely, always in the positive. You may know men like Cornelius, we find him in the book of Acts, who was a centurion. Or the centurion who watched Jesus die exclaim, Surely this man was the Son of God. 21 different occurrences of, of centurions in the New Testament, and only positive. This centurion, this particular centurion, again, we don't know his name either, but this centurion loves Israel. And I might I add, Israel loves him. The Jewish community loves him. He's even paid to build a synagogue for the Jews in Capernaum. It looks like he's found a family away from family. But not only has he funded the building project for Israel, we come to the central fact of the story. It's that, again, the centurion had a slave whom he highly regarded. This was rare. In the Roman Empire, slaves had no rights. They could be mistreated, even put to death. One ancient writer, a commentator, says that when your animals are old, you throw them out to die. And you do the same with your slaves. So this is unusual, highly unusual, that a centurion, a Roman soldier, a Roman commander, would have a high regard for this slave, for this servant. The Roman soldier, the centurion, would care so much about his slave. The text tells us that he's highly valued. And it's a word that you'll see come up a few times in this particular story. I mean, in these short 10 verses, you'll find it three times. It's a word that you'll see come up a few times in this story, someone who is worthy. Someone who has value or merits or is of usefulness, of worth. 
What do we make of this? If the centurion regarded the servant as an asset or a possession, valuable might be a good translation for that word. But if the centurion was... Uh, if the centurion was uh, the moral, sensitive man that I think that this, uh, this account suggests, maybe better translated, esteemed. Esteemed. Regarded dearly. And it's not that clear why the hesitation to approach Jesus, whether that's because of his care for this slave or because he's a Gentile, suddenly... Uh, he's looking at Jewish elders to do the requesting for him. And instead of approaching Jesus himself, he sends Jewish delegates, friends, these family members away from family members, elders of the Jewish community to make this request before Jesus. Now, notice the repeated references to the centurion's kindness. He cares for this sick servant. He loves the Jewish nation. And he supports their worship. He's funded the building project of a synagogue. But when the elders speak to Jesus, they don't just bring a request. They emphasize the centurion's good qualities and lobby on his behalf. This man deserves, is the word that we have, to have you do this because he loves our nation. He's built our synagogue he deserves it. He loved the nation of Israel, and he's proved it by building a synagogue in Capernaum. He is worthy. Again, there's that word. There, he's worthy to have you do this for him. The elders use the worthiness card. This guy is legit. This guy's okay. He's worthy. He's deserving of your help. Yes, the centurion was kind-hearted. He was wealthy. He was respectable. He was generous. And again, the word that you might use, that word that you and I might use is the word worthy. Absolutely. The kind of person that you and I would love to be friends with. Right? Kind-hearted, generous, and hospitable. Caring and compassionate, respectable, he's worthy. But the request is interesting because from the perspective of the elders, centurion, this centurion was worthy. Jesus, uh, this centurion is worthy of your time. In other words, again, what's not spoken in the text is, again, there were probably others who were unworthy of that. There are many others who are not worthy of your time and energy, but this guy, this centurion, he's worthy to have you visit his home and help him in his great need. Lord, he deserves it. We owe it to him. To them, he deserved the grace and kindness of God. Why? Because he was rich because he was generous, because he was kind. He had done great works. He loved their nation. He even built a synagogue for them. And the elders praised him for doing good deeds, deeds so good that in their estimation, they thought that the centurion had earned God's grace. 
and favor. Let me pause for a moment right there and just say, what makes a person worthy? What makes a person's request worthy? Well, most of us grew up being measured by what we accomplished or achieved, whether it was making good grades or simply pleasing our parents or teachers. Almost all of us got the message that our, that our praise uh, and therefore our value came from what we did and how we pleased others. Now, there's nothing wrong with accomplishments or accolades, but there's something to be said when we use these as a measure of our worth or our worthiness. What makes a person worthy? Is it good traits? Is it usefulness? Is it success? Is it kindness or goodness? And the problem with this, I think, again, it's something that's debated in our culture, I think, quite a bit. Everything's about worth and value. The problem is that each of us use a different metric to evaluate worthiness. What we use to assess whether a person has value or significance. Well, let me tell you, the elders are wrong. You don't merit God's good graces. You don't earn it. And so how does Jesus respond to the request of the elders, this ensuring he's worthy of your time, Jesus? He's worthy of your efforts, Jesus. He's done great things for Israel. He's, he's owed. He's deserving of this. Jesus doesn't respond to it. Does Jesus go because this is a significant person of power and means? Right? Does Jesus respond to the elders because he's somebody? He's a somebody in, a, in, a, in this culture? Does the fact that this is a highly valued man convince Jesus to help him? Like, do you think Jesus was thinking, what can I gain from this? Or how will this better my reputation or my situation? I don't think it is. I don't think that's Jesus' motivation. He didn't have to go. He didn't owe it to him. But he goes anyways. And here's the point. My friends, worthiness had nothing to do with it. Worthiness had nothing to do with whether Jesus went or, or didn't. Worthiness had nothing to do with Jesus responding to the elders and going to the centurion's house to heal his servant who was on his deathbed, it seems. It's clear to me that as we read the rest of the book of Luke, and particularly in the rest of chapter 7 of Luke, he heals and show, shows compassion even to the least of these. I mean, the next story, starting in verse 11, is about a widow, a widow who has no means, a, a widow who has a son who has just died. So do you think this is Jesus' motivation, that he might gain something out of that? I don't think so, because the next person that we see is a widow. The text also tells us at the end of the story that he doesn't heal the centurion's servant because of the centurion's worthiness, but his 
unworthiness. It's quite interesting. The centurion sees himself as he really is. In fact, he sees, and again, he asserts his own unworthiness before Jesus. In verse 6, and Jesus went with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Jesus never makes it to the centurion's home because the centurion wouldn't let him come in. As they're on their way, he sends a delegation, an embassy from the centurion. Again, it's this message. And there's this, uh, and this time it's some friends. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. You see, the elders of the synagogue said, he's worthy for you to do this. And that's not the same attitude as that of the centurion. He says, I'm not worthy for you even to come into my house. He knew the protocol. He knew that, again, uh, again, a Jew coming into a Gentile home, he'd be declared unclean into this unkosher home. So he stops Jesus in his tracks and says, don't come. He says, just say the word. Just say the word and let my servant be healed. In verse 8, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The centurion speaks exactly the way a military man would. <laughs> right? There's hierarchy in the military, right? There's a chain of command. You, you do what your commanding officer tells you to do, and you do it. There's no bargaining with your superior officer. There's no talking back. You just do it. And again, the centurion knew this well. Again, he says, when I give a command, I expect them to immediately obey. That's the way the chain of command works. I say it, and they do it. I say go, and he goes. I say come, and he comes. I say, do this, and he does it. Here's something else he understands about the situation. He says, uh, I don't have to be there to command my soldier to do it. I can command it from afar, and they'll do it. It's a fascinating uh, realization. I don't have to be personally present for my soldiers to obey what I say. but he realizes something else. He understands of Jesus that he has unlimited power. He says, just say the word and your servant will be healed. Just say the word and the disease will disappear. He realizes the authority and the power of, of Jesus himself. He says, just say it from afar. But my friends, before we get too carried away, thinking that the centurion is the main character of this story, it always come back, comes back to Jesus. These stories are designed to help us to come to know the main point of the gospel narrative, the main character of the story. In this passage, Luke tells us story after story, all that are designed to help us 
and his original readers appreciate more fully who Jesus is. That you and I might come to know more fully who Jesus is. And that was the point of Luke's writings, that again, when we read the scriptures and we hear about all these stories, that we would come to this conclusion that again, with all the disciples who were there and all the all those who have been healed of various diseases, those who have been raised from the dead might come to the same conclusion that, that Jesus has authority and that Jesus is Lord. Who Jesus is. And then in verse 9, And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, turning to the crowd that followed him, saying, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, there you go. The servant was found well. He said the word. A few things here. First, the Bible tells us that Jesus marveled. I get taken aback by that comment. It's not common that you find that in the scriptures that Jesus marveled. He's uh, amazed. I might use the word, and I may be totally wrong, but he's flabbergasted. This is strange to me. For someone who knows everything, the one who is omniscient, right? Another fancy word for saying uh, Jesus knows everything. He's shocked. He's amazed at this man's faith. It's not that he, he doesn't think a Gentile can exhibit faith. It's the combination of humility mixed with deep faith that describes what Jesus praises. I mean, do you have an, any, an inkling of how kind and compassionate that little phrase is? You know, it would make sense that if, uh, if the man marveled at Jesus, but it's the other way around. Jesus in his kindness is marveling at this man, this Gentile, this Roman soldier, this Roman officer marveling at the man's faith. The point is, this man is a Roman centurion, not a Jewish leader, and yet he has faith. And the point of Luke's writing is that it pops up where you least expect it. And that's the whole point of the gospel of Luke, that this is a faith outside of, of Israel, and that amazed Jesus. After all, the people of Israel had the law, they had the prophets, they had centuries of tradition. They had the knowledge of God. They had history stretching back to Abraham. They had received the promises of God. They were a covenant people. They had every advantage that a centurion did not. And yet, he had faith. And he says, this man, this Gentile, this centurion exhibits more faith than anyone in all of Israel. Perhaps this morning you're wondering if you're worthy. I would ask that you not use the world's definition of worthiness. The world has a skewed definition, and again, it all is different, whoever you speak to. Jesus reaches out to people in need, desperate need, people like you and me. That is the desire of his heart to rescue people from sickness and sin and death, 
Perhaps you come this morning thinking, I don't, I, my record, my record, my spiritual record isn't that great. And I don't know if I'm worthy of receiving the grace and the love that Jesus provides. Maybe you're here wrestling and asking those questions and perhaps having some doubt because of your past, because of various experiences, and you come before Jesus and say, I, I don't know if I deserve it. And I'll tell you, you're right. But none of us do. Because there may be some of us here who think, I deserve it because I've lived a pretty good life up to this point. That I've done more good than bad. That the good in my life far outweighs the bad in my life. I mean, it's strange to see that a good man like the centurion, and yet he sees himself as he really is. While others saw him as entitled to some sort of special consideration, he saw himself as unworthy. That is, compared to Jesus. And what made him unworthy was the superior worthiness of Jesus. How do you see yourself and how you see Jesus? These two questions are connected because when we see Jesus as he really is, in all his splendor, we begin to see our true spiritual need. And that was the case a few weeks ago when we looked at the life of Peter, right? Peter is at the, in, in the boat with Jesus, and, and again, there, he hauls in a large catch of fish, and he falls on his knees before Jesus and says, Oh, wicked man that I am. He says, Depart from me, Jesus. What the centurion does is not, he does not compare himself with, with those around him, but he compares himself with, with the superior worthiness of Jesus. And again, he sees himself as completely unworthy. And my friends, this morning, this is not a, again, I hope you don't get this when you, when you hear us preach, this is not just pessimism. This is not just looking at the glass half empty. This is not just the, uh, the bad news. And again, it, this is a, a healthy realism that, again, if you understand this, it's a breath of fresh air of the gospel. And even though I'm unworthy, but it's more than just in our own unworthiness that we need to see. We need true faith in Jesus. What's important and what's interesting about this particular story, and the next one is that the ones in need of healing isn't aren't the ones doing the asking. In the story that follows, the widow is mourning the loss of her son. In our story this morning, it is the centurion that pleads uh, for the life of his servant. Uh, and without even seeing the sufferer, and I love this, even without seeing the servant of the centurion, even without looking at his face, and even looking, without looking in his eyes, he speaks, and the sick man is cured. He utters a single word, and this dying man is restored to health. He commands, and the disease departs. I love how Jesus heals. And it's Jesus who is the main character of this story, that he knows us, and he knows our suffering, and he knows our pain, and he knows our weaknesses. He knows our grief. 
And you and I know that we've had our fair share of those things. In our book study, our book club that we've been having every month, it, it's, uh, we read about uh, how broken we really are before God. But the good news, the good news is that Jesus invites all of those. He turns to us with the same invitation that Jesus has the power to heal. He can bring whatever healing we need, whatever comfort in our grief, whatever forgiveness for our sin, whatever hope for our future. Jesus provides that because he himself has been tempted in every way just as we are and yet without sin. In the seventh chapter of uh, Sam Alberry's book, he, he mentions a Hebrews chapter 4 and tells that Jesus, he's able to relate with us. He's able to sympathize, us, sympathize with us in just the right way. And I love it because he, uh, Sam Alberry says that, we're, that he's uh, like us in every way. And, and he says he's uh, like us in just the right way and he's unlike us in just the right way who has the right to become our mediator just the right way. That he who knew no sin, that he would become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. <laughs>